Good morning. My name is Jamie Duggett. I'm the pastoral intern here. And uh, I'm very glad that you joined us. Let's now hear the reading of God's word from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open this text to us, that we would understand it rightly, and that we would glorify you and your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a child, my family moved to California. New school, first day. A new friend invited me to play a fun game. There was a retaining roll along the edge of the playgrounds, and it went up in stepwise fashion, and we climbed up along the top of that retaining wall. It was a lot of fun. But then... I heard a voice calling me to get down. It was one of the lunch ladies, those arbiters of justice who I was to learn were like the angel of God showing no partiality. I got in trouble. I didn't even know there was a rule that you weren't allowed to climb along the top of the retaining wall. It was a very, um, a very distressing experience for a young child. Now, those, uh, those lunch ladies, they could be a little terrifying, but they were there for our protection. It was very good that they didn't let me climb along the tops of walls. And as we're going to see in our passage today, when we are in the church, when we're joined to the people of God, Peter's going to tell us that we are under God's judgment but not a judgment that condemns and destroys us, but a judgment that protects and purifies us. I want us to see three points from this passage today. Number one, our suffering unites us to Christ. Number two, we are called to suffer as Christians. And number three, judgment begins with the house of God. So number one, our suffering unites us to Christ. Number two, we are called to suffer as Christians. And number three, judgment begins with the house of God. 
Before I launch straight into my first point, though, I want you to notice this little word that starts out the whole passage. Beloved. It's a reminder we shouldn't skip over too quickly. Before we jump to some of the ways in which this passage challenges us today, we need to remember that all obedience in the Christian life emerges out of this reality, because God has first loved us. This is who you are. This is your identity. God looked at you and said, I love you. It was solely out of his free choice, before you'd done anything to try and earn it, that he called you beloved. So with that in mind, what does the God who loves us have to say to us, his beloved, today through his apostle Peter? Well, our first point, our suffering unites us to Christ. That's because Christian suffering is part of God's plan for our salvation. Peter says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I wonder if you are surprised to hear that this morning. Is suffering part of your understanding of the gospel? Or have you bought into the idea that Jesus came to make you more effective, successful, and a wealthy person? Or maybe you just have a tendency to forget this biblical teaching because you've gotten comfortable in the world, and suffering seems like a distant prospect. I know that can happen to me. Or maybe you have been surprised by suffering recently, and you're wondering, why is this happening? Or maybe you're just somebody here today who's exploring Christianity, and you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, suffering? I'm not sure I want to sign up for that. Well, whatever your reason, this might be a surprising teaching to you. Okay, Peter, then, what is the deal with suffering? Why shouldn't we be surprised at it? Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also be, uh, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter tells us that when we suffer as Christians, we share, we participate, we have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. And that is why we should rejoice. It's not that we're masochists. It's not that we enjoy suffering for its own sake. Uh, in itself, suffering is the result of the curse, the dark shadow that sin casts on our world. But we rejoice because in this suffering we are united to Christ. As his image is worked more and more into us. You see, Jesus didn't just come to be the perfect image of God himself. Rather, he came so that he could share that image with us. You see, if Jesus' death had just been a grand theater show for the world to spectate, it would have all been in vain. But in fact, the Son of God united himself to human flesh so that humans could be united to God. The destiny for which you were created, the destiny for which I was created, was that we should be like God. But in the garden, that ancient serpent, Satan, he deceived our first parents into a perverted vision, version of that vision, a version which grasped for God's power and knowledge, but without holiness. In Jesus, we see what the image of God really looks like, in the love that suffered and died for his friends. But we don't just see it 
As the Spirit works faith in our hearts, we are united to it. We are remade in the image of Christ, and so we become like God insofar as it's possible for a human being to be so. What an amazingly deep and wide and mystical and incomprehensible reality. It's beyond all that we could ask or dream or imagine, yet at the same time, it's what we've wanted all along. It's the only destiny in which our hearts can find rest so that they'll be restless if we have anything less than union with God. Now, but here is the thing. This gift is given to us through suffering. And that is a hard word to hear. You know, Peter had a hard time with it too. Maybe you remember this story from Mark 8, 31. Uh, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he says to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter was rebuked by Jesus. He didn't like the message that the Messiah had to suffer and be killed. It didn't fit his ideas of what Jesus should be. And yet, praise be to God, as we read in our text today, we hear a changed man, an apostle who testifies to the truth he learned from his Savior. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Notice the pattern. Suffering first, then glory. If we suffer with Christ now, we will have all the more cause for rejoicing when his glory is finally revealed. And then hear this man who once, twice, three times denied the Savior because he was afraid of what people would do to him, if they found out he was Jesus' follower, this same man, now restored, forgiven, and strengthened by his Savior, he teaches us what Jesus taught. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you hear the echo of the Sermon on the Mount, which Frank read for us earlier? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter, like Jesus, tells us that if we suffer, we are blessed. Why are we blessed? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, all the way back in the prophet Isaiah's day, there was a promise in Isaiah 11, 1-2, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
And where do we see this prophecy fulfilled, if not at Jesus' baptism? Where the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit is depicted for all to see by the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove and resting upon him. But it's not only fulfilled in Christ. It's also fulfilled in the church. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, we see tongues of fire resting on the heads of the whole assembly. It's a sign of the Spirit's empowering presence with the church. And so believers come to share in this baptism of the Holy Spirit that Christ has. Ah, but do you remember what happens immediately after Jesus' baptism? Mark 1.12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Beloved, if we have the Spirit of Christ resting upon us, we can expect him to take us out into the wilderness to be tested, just as he did with Christ. Not that our testing is precisely the same as Jesus, as if we're going to triumph over Satan by our perfect obedience, but the Spirit means to work Christ's image into us, and that happens by trials. As Peter just said in verse 12, this fiery trial comes upon us to test us. Perhaps you've noticed the truth that, that no living thing grows without challenges. If we send astronauts up into space and free them from the downward pull of gravity, immediately their muscles atrophy and their bone density is lost. Uh, if you work out, as I've been trying to do a little more recently, uh, you know, no pain, no gain. Parents, you know that if you always shelter your children from every little difficulty, they will not grow up to be emotionally resilient people. This is the spiritual corollary to that truth. Growth in the Christian life comes largely through trials. Now that can be daunting, challenging, even discouraging. So Peter here wants to make sure that we remember where these trials come from, that they have the Spirit's fingerprints all over them. These things are happening to us because the Spirit is teaching us to bear our cross so that we can more and more bear the image of our beloved Savior to unite us more and more closely to him. Let's stop for a moment uh, for some application. Some of you are in serious suffering right now. Perhaps you or a loved one is going through serious illness or the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're being publicly slandered and attacked, as apparently the hearers of Peter's letters were. But others of you might feel like life is going pretty well. You might not feel like you're having any kind of great suffering right now. Um, maybe it's tempting for you to just check out for this sermon. But notice how Peter describes suffering as the norm for the Christian life. Trials shouldn't be surprising, they should be expected. You see, Peter's not only talking about exceptional suffering here. Now, it's true that within Peter's lifetime, Christians in Rome would be burned alive, and Peter himself would be executed. But there, there's no evidence that that was happening to the Christians in Asia Minor to whom Peter was sending the letter. In fact, the language Peter use it, uses makes it sound like the problem is more with verbal abuse 
and social ostracism more than, say, physical beatings or death. My point is that there are many different ways in which we're called to suffer in the Christian life, many ways in which God tries us. So I want to encourage you to look at all the hardships in your life, great and small, as trials that God has sent into your life for a purpose. That could be an immense amount of stress that you're experiencing right now. It could be the end of a friendship or a relationship. It could be the tedium and pressure of a difficult employment situation. It could be the loneliness and social isolation of COVID-19. These two are things we shouldn't be surprised of as Christians. God has them in your life for a reason. His purpose for them is to unite you more closely with Christ. Okay, so that's our first point. Our suffering unites us to Christ. Second point, we are called to suffer as Christians. And what that means is that being a Christian, bearing Christ's name upon us, comes with a call to holiness. It brings home to us a new urgency, with a new urgency, the ethical demands that God makes of us. Now, we as Protestants can get a little bit nervous about this. Uh, because we want to be careful that we don't place ourselves back under the yoke of the law. We don't want to treat obedience to God's law as something we do to earn God's favor. We also don't want to ignore the reality of remaining sin in our hearts. We don't want to get caught in the trap of perfectionism, and we definitely don't want to get caught in the trap of hypocrisy, where we pretend to be holier than we really are so that we can be seen as good Christians. We know that Scripture teaches that since salvation is by grace through faith, we are freed from the enslavement of that kind of mentality. But that doesn't mean that we're done with obedience. Rather, it changes the motivation for our obedience. No longer are we driven by the need to prove our own righteousness before God. Rather, we respond out of love for our Savior and what He has done for us. Now, I hope that you can see how the desire for Christ-likeness permeates the ethical demands of this passage. The whole atmosphere is as someone to whom Christ has become so beautiful that they long to be like him. And so Peter says in verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Notice that Peter calls us to a particular kind of suffering here, suffering for the name of Christ. Well, by the way, that's not the only kind of suffering, Christian suffering in the Bible. Sometimes God does send us suffering as discipline for our sins, not as condemnation, but as restorative discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You can look at Hebrews 12 for more about this. Uh, because God is our Father who loves us, he disciplines us when we sin. That discipline may be painful, but it's for our good. But that's not the only kind of Christian suffering. And we should never look at suffering in the Christian life and just assume that it's a result of, sin, of our sin. Christians may suffer for doing the right thing even simply because they confess the name of Christ. That's the kind of suffering that Peter wants us to focus on here. That's what he's emphasizing. And so, in order that we might 
participate in that kind of suffering, Peter lists some specific things we should avoid. It's not a comprehensive list, but I think we can take these as some of the sins that the Holy Spirit wants us to think about as we hear this word today. Peter says not to be a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Now, the first three might seem pretty straightforward. Most people, believers or not, know that these things are wrong. I will remind you, though, that Jesus tells us not just to avoid murder, but also to avoid hate, which is like murdering someone in your heart. Likewise, we shouldn't steal from others, but we also shouldn't have a covetous and envious heart when they have things that we want. And it's also worth thinking a little bit more this morning about some of the more specific applications of these principles. So Christians are not to murder, but more than that, they are to be vigilant to protect and preserve life. That means standing against a culture that celebrates abortion, doing everything in our power to preserve the lives of the unborn, even when our culture might push us in another direction. And this pandemic is also a good opportunity for us to practice the Christian value of life. Beloved, I know that COVID has been rough on all of us, and it's gone on longer than I think any of us expected. But I want, and I want to acknowledge that there's room for genuine disagreement in many cases about what is the best, safest policy to follow. I'm not going to tell you this morning precisely how to pursue life in every, in every uh, situation. Um, God's given you your own brains. He's given you the spirit so that you can think through how to do his will in your particular situation. But I want to encourage you to be diligent in preserving life. When you preserve life and avoid infection in this pandemic, it's a way to worship and obey your Savior. So let's not get weary of doing that. Peter wouldn't want us to suffer the insults of the world because we recklessly disregarded human life or because we disobeyed the governing authorities. That's not the kind of suffering that Christ has called us to. And while our whole nation is suffering right now, this is an opportunity for those of us who are Christians to suffer in a quiet, submissive, and patient way that points others to the hope that we have in Christ. The command to not be thieves can also have some nuances. It includes being diligent in protecting others' property. It means that we should act justly in contracts and business dealings. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that it even involves fulfilling our social obligations to the poor and people in need by giving freely to meet that need. So this is a call to us this morning to think widely about how we're engaging in the whole realm of what we do with our wealth. And while evildoers might, might seem pretty simple too, quite literally, don't do bad stuff, we should remember how tempted we sometimes are by the logic of the ends justify the means, as if we could bring about good results by doing evil things. Last in the list is meddler. And it's kind of an interesting one because it's not as blatantly objectionable as the other ones, is it? I think Peter's doing something here the apostles often do. They know that we're prone to a hypocritical mindset that says, well, at least I'm not like that big sinner over there. And so they always include in these lists something that's a little less obvious, something that might hit the hypocrite right where they live. So this Greek word here, 
Alotre episkopos, I think it's kind of fun to say. It's actually a rare word. In fact, Peter may have made it up. And it means something like an overseer of what belongs to somebody else. Or maybe supervisor of other people's business. And if you listen to the words, alotre episkopos, you might hear episkopos in there, which is the word for overseer or bishop. Peter's going to go on in chapter 5 to tell elders to oversee the flock. So it's not like there's no legitimate overseeing in the church. But there's also an illegitimate sort, a kind that gets into other people's business, a kind that always wants to tell others what to think and what to do, rather than focusing on where God is calling a person in the community he's put them in. And since I've mentioned the temptation COVID presents to not be diligent in preserving human life, Let me also mention the temptation COVID provides for us to judge other people. In a situation that's contentious and complex and situational, there are ample opportunities to put ourselves up on the judgment seat and look down at what other people are doing. And thanks to the wonders of social media, it's now possible to instantly get into other people's business on the other side of the world. Let me remind you that even if you're right about something, you can still be judgmental about it. The New Testament calls us to a certain modesty, which lives a quiet life and lets alone what is not its business. If others insult and persecute us because we got inappropriately mixed up in what's not our business, that's not the kind of Christian suffering that Peter is calling us to either. And the internet application of that hits me one hits me pretty close as well. You know, if somebody's wrong on the internet, it's very easy for me to think that's my business to deal with. This modesty is something that God's calling me to as well. Before we leave this point, though, let's let's also notice the motivation for this. In verse 16, Peter tells us not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in the name of Christian. Notice where Peter wants us to put our glory. It's not in what the world thinks or worldly approval. We're not to be ashamed just because the world thinks we ought to be ashamed. Nor is our glory to be put in ourselves. We're not to glory in how good a job we think we might be doing and suffering well. Rather, our glory is in the name Christian. And what is the name Christian other than the stamp of Christ upon us? Once again, Peter is drawing us back to the fact that we are in Christ. This is why we are to have such a great care in regard for our conduct in suffering, not to build our own reputation, but out of a desire to glorify the name of Christ, which we bear. So that's the second point. We are called to suffer as Christians. Now for the third point. Judgment begins with the house of God. Peter says in verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? When Peter says that judgment begins at God's house, he's referring to an Old Testament theme from the prophets. Uh, We see this pattern in the passage Dory read for us this morning. From Jeremiah 25, 29, For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city which is called by my name. And uh, in Ezekiel 9, 6, God's work of judgment uh, starts 
well, God says, begin at my sanctuary. So we see this pattern that God's work of judgment starts at the place where he's put his name, at the temple in Jerusalem. And the theme that God's judgment on the whole world uh, begins with Israel is a broader theme in the prophets. We often see the prophets begin by announcing God's judgment on Judah and Israel, but then widening it with oracles against various surrounding nations. But there's an important difference between these two judgments in the Old Testament. Assyria may fall to rise no more, but God does not give up on his people. Rather, his judgment, hard as it may be, purifies them so that they can be restored to their land. This idea that the suffering of God's people is a preliminary judgment was something the Jewish community was thinking about even before Jesus came. Um, the book of 2 Maccabees tells the story of how some of the prophecies in Daniel came to pass when the Seleucid king Antiochus attacked and desecrated Jerusalem. It was a time of great suffering for God's people. By the way, this is one of the books that we call the Apocrypha. It's not part of the Bible. It's not God's word, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have some good things to say and we can't learn some things from it. And importantly, it gives us a window to the time immediately before Jesus came. Well, in 2 Maccabees 6, 12 to 16, we find this. Now I urge those who read this book not to be depressed by such calamities, but to recognize that these punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline our people. In fact, not to let the impious alone for long, but to punish them immediately is a sign of great kindness. For in the case of the other nations, the Lord waits patiently to punish them until they have reached the full measure of their sins, but he does not deal in this way with us, in order that he may not take vengeance on us afterward when our sins have reached their height. Therefore, he never withdraws his mercy from us. Though he disciplines us with calamities, he does not forsake his own people. It's striking that we find a very similar idea in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, rebukes those who abuse the Lord's Supper. These people were trying to worship God, but doing it in a way that harmed and excluded their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's such a serious issue that Paul says some of them have become sick and even died as a result. In verse 32, he says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Notice that even in this very severe case of God's judgment on his church, this judgment is not condemnation. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not condemnation, but it's discipline intended to deal with sin in God's covenant community and purify believers for glory. And so Peter too says that it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. The house of God, by the way, when you, when you hear that, you should think of the temple. That's actually the term used in the Old Testament for the house, for, for the temple, is the house of God. But Peter doesn't mean the literal temple in Jerusalem. He's referring to what that sign pointed to. The people of God who are the body of Christ. Now, Peter already told us in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. Remember that verse. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead... That final resurrection of the dead, which seems so far away, 
began in advance in Christ. And so also the final judgment at the end of time has begun in advance through Christ. Becoming a Christian means placing yourself under God's judgment now. God hasn't forgiven us of our sins just to leave us in sin, but in bringing us into the sphere of his church, he brings us under his fatherly discipline. As I mentioned above, once we're baptized into the name of Christ Jesus, the Spirit drives us out into the wilderness of trial and temptation. By the way, it might be good to re-emphasize this importance of not being an overseer of other people's business here. Recognizing that we're under God's judgment in the church means recognizing that he is the judge and we are not. It means that we don't set ourselves up in judgment over others. Instead, we're to judge ourselves, not in the sense of trying to earn our own righteousness. In that sense, we shouldn't even judge ourselves, when, especially when God has declared us righteous in Christ. But we should judge ourselves in the sense that Paul tells, us in, tells the Corinthians to do in 1 Corinthians 11. We should examine ourselves. We should take the log out of our own eye before we go after the speck in someone else's. And we do need to work for justice in our own community. Oh, and we need to work for justice in our own community of the church before we go tell the world what to do. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time to confront anybody else's sin. And I'm also not saying that there's never a time for us to speak about just what's justice in the world. But we better be serious about dealing with our issues first. Sometimes I think we get this backwards. We can list all of the things that are wrong with those sinners out there, but then we make excuses for ourselves. If we understand what Peter means when he says that the time is now for the judgment in God's house, it will make us much more quick to get about the business of identifying and repenting of our own sin before we go after others. Peter quotes a proverb to support what he's saying about God's judgment. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That's Proverbs 11.31, by the way, although it might read a little bit different in your translation. For if you flip back to Proverbs, that is. For example, the ESV translates, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. But you see, Peter here is actually quoting the Greek translation of this proverb. It's a bit more of an interpretive paraphrase of the verse. I won't get into all the details now about how the Greek translator was interpreting the Hebrew, although I will point out, as a bit of an aside, that apparently it is okay to use paraphrases. You know, sometimes I think we can feel a bit of a sense of superiority about our Bible translations. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen in Bible study. You're like, oh, what, what translation is that? Oh, it's the NIV. Well, I use the ESV. It's more literal. And, you know, then you feel pretty good about yourself, but then what happens, right? Somebody walks into the Bible study and they have the NASB, you know, and that's practically still Greek. It's barely even English. Before you get too wrapped up in the superiority of the translation you use, maybe, you know, we should consider that the Apostle Peter wasn't above using a paraphrase from time to time. Anyway, uh, 
as the Greek translator and Peter interpret the proverb, it highlights the difficulty of salvation. God repays even the righteous when they sin. God disciplines them. Salvation is not an easy path. Rather, it's the path of God's discipline. And this too is no doubt a hard saying. Who wants to sign up for judgment, for trial and discipline? But it comes with a warning. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? To obey the gospel, that doesn't mean perfect obedience to God's law, but rather to believe the gospel, to put our faith in Christ, and therefore to come into his kingdom. Peter wants us to consider the outcome if we do not come to Christ for deliverance. You see, sin always seems pleasant at the time. We see this with addictions. First, the allure of pleasure pulls us in. Then it traps us until we finally have to keep repeating the same damaging activity over and over. And at that point, it's not even about the pleasure anymore. But it's just that if we stop, we face the pain of withdrawal. Consider the outcome. Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby had power and fame. They used it to exploit and damage others for their own pleasure, and they got away with it too for a long time. But now they're facing the penalty for their misdeeds. How different their lives might have been if they had considered the outcome. To me, this is the most terrifying aspect of sin. It starts with a small indulgence of pleasure, a little relaxation of the right thing to do, and before you know it, your heart has calcified and hardened. Evil has spread and possessed you, and soon you are willing to do horrible things to worship it, even sacrifice your own fellow humans made in God's image. Peter tells us that there is a consequence for sin. Even if we might get away with it for a while, there is a day of judgment coming when every hidden deed will be called to account before God's throne. You see, the path Jesus calls us to may be narrow and hard, but how much better it is than allowing ourselves to be mastered by sin. The good news is that it's not a matter of fixing ourselves or putting ourselves right to stand before that throne. It's merely a matter of believing in Jesus and his sacrifice to deal with our sin. When we do that, when we believe in Christ, we enroll in God's school of discipline. Holy Spirit's not going to leave you alone after that. And that's for our good and our safety. It's a rehab from sin. The trials and sufferings God leads us into are for our protection. While he may allow his sheep to wander for a while in their sin, the good shepherd won't finally abandon them to themselves, but will bring them back through his rod of loving discipline. If you're listening here today and, and you're someone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in this passage. He's calling you to come and put your faith in Christ and follow him as his disciple. If you have seen something of the darkness and sin in yourself and in the world around you, consider the outcome of going your own way and come to the one who can heal your soul. 
And if you want to talk more about that, please get in touch with me or Mike. We'd be happy to talk to you. So that's the third point. It's time for judgment to begin with the church. But before we end, let's take a look at this last verse. It could be the theme verse for the whole section. Maybe even the whole book. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter exhorts us while we suffer to continue doing good. This sort of suffering is according to God's will because every trial we experience has been brought into our lives by him for a reason. But then finally, Peter is focusing us back on Jesus again. He calls us to entrust our soul to a faithful creator. It's hard to hear these words and not hear in them the echo of Jesus' last words on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The power of sin is scary. The prospect of dealing with sin can be scary too, especially when it involves trials. But Peter wants us to remember that our creator is faithful. We see that faithfulness at the cross. We see a Savior who truly suffered more deeply than we will ever know. A Savior who has been there in the wilderness, but did not submit to the temptation of the devil. A Savior who still resisted temptation when it found him again in the garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Our Savior was faithful even to the point of death. With his dying breath, he still trusted in his Father, commending his spirit into his hands. And his Father proved faithful to him, hearing his prayer and raising him from the dead, seating him far above all powers and principalities. That Savior calls us today into a path with many trials, and much suffering. But he does not do it as one who has not experienced it himself. He has walked it first. He has walked it perfectly in a way we never will. His grace is what will keep us safe. His Spirit is who will keep us walking in that path. So we have every reason to rejoice in all our suffering. Because our God is leading us on to glory. He is making us more like Jesus every day. And one day, we will see him as he is when he returns to banish sin and darkness forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great your grace is that you sought us, though we stray from you, that you saved us in Christ and that you're making us like him. We pray that you would press this word into our hearts, that we would know that you are our faithful creator, that as often as we fail, you will remain faithful. We pray that you would change our hearts by your spirit this week. Help us to endeavor more and more to 
walk in a way that's faithful to you, to do good even when we suffer. But as often as we do sin and fail, as we do every day, we pray that you would bring us back to the one who was judged for us, to the one who suffered for us, and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.